Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. Psycho. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Silence of the Lambs. Chances are likely that you have seen these notorious movies, or at the very least, heard of them. Their grisly nature will indeed leave one wondering how someone's imagination could possibly be so morbid. But the truth is, these films were inspired by one of the most bizarre, real killers in American history. Tonight, we discuss the Plainfield ghoul, Ed Gein. Edward Theodore Ed Gein was born August 27, 1906, in La Crosse County, Wisconsin, to his parents, George Philip Gein and Augusta Wilhelmine Gein. Ed was the younger sibling of two children. His older brother was Henry George Gein. Ed's father worked as a carpenter, tanner, and insurance salesman, while his mother ran a grocery store, which was sold a few years later. The family soon left the city and purchased a 155-acre farm in Washara County, Wisconsin, near the town of Plainfield. This became the Gein family's permanent residence. Augusta deeply despised her husband due to his alcoholic tendencies, which often left him jobless. But because of the family's strict Lutheran beliefs, she refused to file for divorce. Augusta cherished the farm's vast isolation. She wished to keep her sons far from the world and instill her strong religious faith within them. She regularly read them passages from the Bible, specifically violent ones from the Old Testament. In addition, she told her sons that all women were naturally prostitutes. During his childhood, the only times Ed left the farm and interacted with the outside world was when he was attending school. Even so, his mother would always discourage him from making friends, and when he did, she would punish him severely. In school, Ed exhibited abnormal behavior and peculiar mannerisms, specifically laughing during completely random times. His teachers and peers assumed he was merely amused by his own jokes. When he wasn't in school, Ed and his brother would be working various chores on the farm. But despite trying desperately to please their mother, Augusta often abused her children, believing that they would grow up to be failures like their father. During the boys' teenage years and early adulthoods, Ed and Henry remained disconnected from people outside of their farm, and only had each other for company. George died of heart failure in 1940 at the age of 66 due to alcoholism. Ed and Henry were consequently left with the responsibility to find odd jobs around the town. This would help cover living expenses. Residents of the community deemed the two brothers as honest and reliable. While Ed and Henry worked as handymen, Ed would also frequently babysit for neighbors, relating more with children than adults. Eventually, Henry began to date a single mother and additionally rejected his own mother's views. He became gravely worried about Ed's fondness of her and sometimes spoke ill of Augusta around him. On May 16, 1944, a brush fire that Ed and Henry were burning began spreading rapidly. It was reported that during the fire, the brothers were separated. By nightfall, when the fire was properly extinguished by the firefighters, Ed reported that his brother went missing. A search party wielding lanterns and flashlights found Henry dead, lying face down. Evidently, he had been dead for quite some time and was untouched by the fire. Furthermore, bruises were discovered on his head. But despite this, police dismissed the likelihood of foul play and never performed an autopsy. Many scholars believe that the possibility that Ed murdered his brother is exceedingly high. 
The only two remaining members of the family were Ed and his mother. Augusta soon had a stroke, after which Ed pledged to take care of her. In 1945, Ed and Augusta visited a man named Smith to purchase straw. During their visit, Augusta witnessed Smith beating a dog to death, during which a woman came out pleading with him to stop. What troubled Augusta was not the fact that the dog was killed, but the fact that the woman was present, a woman who was not married to Smith. She referred to the woman as Smith's harlot, After this event, Augusta suffered yet another stroke, and from this point onward, her health increasingly declined. On December 29, 1945, Ed's mother died at the age of 67. Her death negatively impacted Ed's life, tearing his mind apart. After her death, Gein stayed on the farm, making a living from working odd jobs. He boarded up every room used by his mother, including the upstairs, downstairs parlor, and living room. The areas of the home that he did occupy became extremely disorganized and decrepit. During this time in his life, he began reading death cult and horror pulp fiction magazines, as well as medical encyclopedias and books about the human anatomy. On November 16, 1957, Plainfield hardware store owner Bernice Warden went missing. One of the Plainfield residents reported that Warden's truck was driven out from the back of the store at 9.30 a.m. The store had been closed the entire day, but many of the residents assumed it was because of deer season. Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden, Bernice Warden's son, entered the store at 5 p.m. The cash register was open and bloodstains were conspicuously on the floor. Frank Warden made it clear to investigators that Ed Gein was the last customer the day before and would have likely purchased antifreeze the following morning. The last receipt was from earlier that morning and had antifreeze written on it. Later that evening, Ed was apprehended at West Plainfield Grocery Store. The Washara County Sheriff's Department subsequently searched his property, and what they uncovered that night at the Gein residence was undoubtedly the most twisted crime scene in American history. A deputy found Warden's corpse hanging in a shed, decapitated and dressed out like a deer. A 22 caliber rifle had given her a quick death, after which the mutilations took place. As law enforcement officers entered the house, they could only begin to realize just how gruesome the crimes Ed committed were. Among the items taken from the scene were whole human bones and fragments, a wastebasket made from human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on his bedposts, female skulls, some with their tops sawn clean off, bowls made from human skulls, a corset created from a female torso skinned from shoulders to waist, leggings made from human skin, nine masks of human skin, a belt made from female nipples, Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack as well as her heart in a plastic bag, nine external female genitals cut off and stored in a shoebox, a young girl's dress and the genitals of two females judged to have been 15 years old, four noses, a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring, a lampshade made from the skin of a human face, internal organs in the refrigerator, fingernails from female fingers, and the skull and face mask of tavern owner Mary Hogan. Ed would later confess to killing her as well. These pieces of evidence were photographed at the state crime laboratory and then properly disposed. When authorities questioned Ed Gein, he confessed to making as many as 40 nocturnal visits to three local graveyards between 1947 and 1952. While at the cemeteries in a dazed-like state, He unearthed bodies that were recently laid to rest, but claimed to usually leave empty-handed. On other occasions, he would exhume the recently buried bodies of middle-aged women, some of whom he thought resembled his mother. He would then take their bodies home and tan their skin to construct his grisly 
creations. Ed admitted to stealing the bodies from nine graves and even led investigators to their exact locations. However, authorities found it hard to believe that Ed could dig up a grave in one single evening. To prove his claims, they excavated two graves that he claimed to have taken bodies from, and as Ed had told them, they were empty. Gein denied having sexual intercourse with the cadavers that he stole, explaining that they smelled too bad. Sometime after Augusta's death, Ed crafted a woman's suit so that he could become his mother and literally crawl into her skin. He additionally wore face masks that were carefully peeled from corpses. Interestingly enough, Ed was soon considered a suspect in the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley, although her remains were never found on his property. As the questioning continued, Sheriff Art Sly reportedly banged Ed Gein's face and head into a brick wall. And because of this incident, Ed's first confession was ruled inadmissible. Those who knew Sheriff Sly said that he was traumatized by the unimaginable horror of Ed Gein's crimes, but was also afraid to testify in court due to his violent outburst. As a result, he died of heart failure. One of his friends remarked on his death, stating he was a victim of Ed Gein as surely as if he had butchered him. On November 21, 1957, Gein was charged with one count of first-degree murder. Ed pled not guilty for reason of insanity. He was found schizophrenic, therefore deeming him unfit for trial. Thus, he was sent to Central State Hospital for the criminally insane, but later transferred to Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. In 1968, medical professionals determined Ed to be mentally able to confer with counsel and participate in his defense. His trial began on November 7, 1968, lasting only one week. During the trial, a psychiatrist testified, stating that Ed had told him that he was not sure whether or not he intentionally killed Bernice Warden, saying that while he was in Warden's store, he was examining a rifle when it accidentally went off and shot her. The defense requested that Gein's trial should be held without jury, with Judge Robert H. Galmar ruling. Ed was found guilty by Galmar on November 14th. However, a second trial soon followed in regard to his sanity. During this hearing, medical professionals testified as it was soon ruled out by Judge Galmar that Gein was not guilty by reason of insanity. As a result, he was committed to Mendota State Hospital again, where he would spend the rest of his life. In the aftermath, Ed Gein's house was scheduled to be auctioned on March 30, 1958. It was also rumored that the house would become a tourist attraction. However, before any of this could become a reality, his house was burned down under suspicious circumstances. When Ed learned of the situation, he simply shrugged and stated, just as well. His car was sold to Carnival Sideshow operator Bunny Gibbons for $760. He charged 25 cents for admission and labeled it Ed Gein's Ghoul Car. Ed Gein died on July 26, 1984, due to respiratory failure secondary to lung cancer at the age of 77. The British Jeffrey Dahmer. His name is Dennis Nielsen. Security is an important thing in life, and there are people out there we entrust to provide us with it. Dennis Nielsen was, unfortunately, one of these people. Dennis Nielsen was born in Scotland in 1945. As a young boy, Dennis didn't have a sunny home life. His father preferred spending time away, leaving Dennis without ever truly knowing who his father was. Eventually, his parents divorced and his mother remarried to a man Dennis wasn't very fond of. The only person Dennis truly connected with when he was young was his grandfather. His entire life revolved around the love and appreciation he held for him. Dennis's grandfather was a fisherman who sometimes spent days out at sea while Dennis was left eagerly awaiting his return. Dennis spent a lot of time by himself at the ocean just waiting for his grandfather to come back like he did every time. 
so that they might take walks together again and spend so much time bringing each other the happiness that Dennis felt was in such short supply in the other aspects of his life. But that came to a halt one fateful day when Dennis's grandfather, while at sea, suffered a heart attack and died. Dennis had no closure. He simply lost the most precious person in his life. Dennis emotionally shut down and was typically unreachable by his family. He was crushed. Dennis continued to spend time by the ocean, sometimes soaking his feet in the water. One day, he went a little too far and was soon sucked underwater and dragged out to sea. He recalled struggling frantically to reach the surface of the water before eventually coming to terms with his own demise. He stopped fighting and felt a sudden calmness overcome him. He let himself go. Fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, a hand broke through the surface of the water. Someone nearby had seen his plight and rescued him moments before he drowned. Years later, like most boys do, Dennis began to feel sexual desires. He felt that he might have been homosexual as he found a lot of other boys attractive. This, however, transitioned to him molesting his older brother while he slept. Dennis eventually enlisted in the military and he spent 11 years there. There. Dennis became a very heavy drinker, trying to fill the inner emptiness he felt. It was here, getting drunk with friends, that he realized the desire to be taken advantage of. He began fantasizing about his friends sexually molesting him while he was passed out drunk, and at times would fake being inebriated as to try to tempt one of his friends into taking advantage of him. However, his desires moved far past this, and he began to fantasize about engaging in sexual acts with his friends while they were unconscious or dead. After the military, Dennis spent some quality time with his family in 1972. Eventually, however, the topic of Dennis's suspected homosexuality came to light, and he was vilified by his older brother for it. Dennis cut off communication entirely with his brother, and seldom even spoke to his family ever again. Loneliness began to take over in Dennis's life as he had no one. He attempted to form relationships with other men, but all of them failed. He took a job as a police officer in London that he held for around a year, entrusted to keep the public safe from people like the one he was so close to becoming. With all of his failed relationships, he realized he was spending too much time focused on his job and resigned from the police service in 1973, taking up a job as a security guard. He held this job until his arrest. Dennis continued to drink heavily and frequented gay bars looking for a companion to diminish his loneliness. Company was so important to Dennis, in fact, that he would become willing to kill to keep it. In 1978, he made the decision to take matters into his own hands in order to see to it that he was never lonely again. Dennis didn't have too much trouble in luring his potential love interest home with him with promises of alcohol and other less than reputable indulgences like drugs. A number of men went willingly and at least 12 of them never left his residence they would instead become part of it and provide Dennis with exactly what he was looking for, resistance-free companionship, no arguments, no breakups, no breathing. He had an obsession with choking his victims to death, either with his bare hands or with the use of a tool like a necktie or wire. He would often wait for his victims to let down their defenses. Alcohol and drugs did a wonderful job at that. Sometimes while his victim was using, he would come up behind and strangle them to death. Other times, he'd wait for them to pass out from overindulgence before he launched his attack. As his victims snapped awake, they would realize that they were going to die. He'd wait for them to lose consciousness and from there, force them either into his bathtub or shove their head into a bucket of water to drown them. He'd perform a ritual with each body where he would bathe them before either performing sexual acts with them or dissecting and dismembering them. He started by stuffing bodies under his floorboards, but once he had no space left, he'd begin burning them in a bonfire late at night. Eventually, he'd remove their heads and boil them until their skin came off. He'd chop up their bones and take buckets of liquefied flesh and muscle to flush down his toilet. He moved a number of times during his killing career, so the bonfire became no longer possible at some point. This new filet and flush approach was the only way he saw fit 
aside from disposing of large bones like femurs out with the garbage. Dennis was an opportunist like most efficient predators are, however, Dennis's behavior was strange, even for him. When he failed to kill one man, even after strangling and trying to drown him, he ended up nursing the man back to health, telling him that he hadn't tried to strangle him at all, that the sleeping bag his victim was sleeping in somehow got its zipper wrapped around his neck, and that he was trying to free the man. This victim foolishly didn't report anything to police after he was let go. Perhaps even weirder was the case of an epileptic man who had collapsed just outside of Dennis's home. The man claimed that his medication had made his legs extraordinarily weak and that he couldn't walk. Dennis assisted the man and brought him into his residence. Of course, he strangled and killed him right then and there, right? <laughs> Not quite. No, Dennis kept the man comfortable and actually phoned an ambulance who came and retrieved the man. Brought to better health, the man was released from the hospital the following day and returned to Dennis's home to thank him for his help. Dennis smiled and invited him inside, where he strangled him to death before stuffing his body in a cupboard, not having enough room under his floorboards anymore. Eventually, Dennis and the rest of the residents of the building he lived in began to experience severe plumbing problems. Dennis, oddly enough, took it upon himself to contact estate agents to investigate the clog, which prevented him from further disposing the bodies. A great blunder, considering that all of the flushed remains were the reason it was clogged to begin with. This investigation led to the capture and imprisonment of Dennis Andrew Nielsen in 1983. Dennis is currently serving a life sentence and is 68 years old. Travelers take great risks to explore the world in unfamiliar places surrounded by unfamiliar people. They are at a great disadvantage and some people take advantage of that. Taboo relationships that nearly tore a family apart, bodies found with especially disturbing wound patterns, and gruesome, desperate attempts to regain control. It was the early hours of May 22, 1994. Suburban residents of Cinnabar Street in Eagle Vale, Australia were in the midst of commencing their weekday when an abrupt disturbance of police sirens surrounded the neighborhood. In a matter of minutes, the property of 22 Cinnabar was securely stationed with a team of officers in anticipation for the takedown of Ivan Malat, a highway construction worker accused of viciously murdering seven hitchhikers in New South Wales. Equipped with a search warrant, officers were able to make entry into the house and detain their suspect. The news of Ivan's arrest came as a sudden shock to neighbors and tragically leaving his elderly mother, Margaret Malat, in a state of utter shock and denial. Of all the children she had brought into this world, she couldn't bear the thought that any of them would go on to commit such horrific acts, especially her cherished son, Ivan. Regardless of his arrest, Ivan's mother was certain that her son was wrongfully accused, as she considered him to be an amazing man in her eyes. But perhaps she should have known better. The Malots were far from your average family. They were chaotic and dysfunctional. Ivan Robert Marco Malat was born on December 27, 1944 in Guildford, New South Wales, Australia to Stephen and Margaret Malat. His father was a poor immigrant and his mother was an Australian-born woman who was incredibly devoted to her faith in Christianity. Due to Margaret's disbelief in contraceptives, the couple went on to have a total of 14 children, making Ivan the fifth sibling to be born in their rather large family. Growing up in the Malad household was anything but ordinary. Ivan's father was incredibly detached from displaying affection and rarely showed any sign of appreciation or love towards his children or wife. Having adapted to the hardships of a rough childhood himself, Ivan's father did spend the majority of his days working hard to provide for the family. Family. Living on spacious farmland, Ivan and his nine brothers were forced to assist their father in producing tomatoes, which were sold to markets around town. Oftentimes, if any of the children crossed their father the wrong way, he would beat them viciously, taking out his stress and frustrations on each child whenever he felt necessary. Ivan's vulnerable mind was molded into believing that physical abuse was a common factor in most families' homes, resulting in Ivan accepting his father's father's violence on a regular basis. The contrast between his father's and his mother's parenting skills, well, those were pretty obvious in the household. 
Margaret had no particular favorite when it came to all 14 children. She did everything she could to defend and indulge them with her love and care. Having a mother that stood to his defense even when Ivan was in the wrong gave him the impression that he could push his limits to do what he wanted when he wanted. The family was very much isolated from any form of social interaction with others in the community, keeping to themselves and leaving many unaware of their personal lives. Playtime in the household was anything but childproof. Ivan and his siblings played with ammunition at a young age and would all go on to toy with air guns, later advancing to hunting rifles. The beating at the hands of their father mixed with the strong introduction of firearms resulted in an inevitable set of rebellious and violent children. By his adolescent years, Ivan was regularly charged with criminal activity from robberies to break-ins. Law enforcement had become very well aware of the Malats, seeing as Ivan and his siblings caused the vast majority of crime in their hometown. Due to the lack of interest in his education, Ivan dropped out of school at the age of 15 and began making his own money through the means of hard labor as a construction worker. In 1969, the family moved out of their first family home in the outskirts of Rossmore and moved into a residential neighborhood in Guildford. Since officers became so heavily involved with Ivan and his siblings, officials in their new town were given a sympathy card as a friendly warning to watch out for the number of crimes that were soon to be committed. Ivan pushed his boundaries and often had little remorse for his actions, and that extended into his sex life. On many occasions, Ivan took his chances with the women closest to him. His brothers and cousins would often catch their wives or girlfriends having affairs with Ivan, causing major disputes to occur, even as far as male relatives accusing Ivan of being the biological father of their children. Also, rumors spread of Ivan having an incestuous relationship with his sister Shirley, as the two seemed to have a relationship closer than the average brother and sister. Tragedy struck the family in 1971 when two Two of his younger siblings were both involved in a severe car crash, resulting in his brother going into a coma and the death of one of his sisters. The sudden loss of his sister impacted Ivan's life harshly. Many in the family believed that out of all the siblings, Ivan was the one to take her death the hardest, and he was never the same again. Ivan's habits of towing the line of socially acceptable behavior had been pushed over the edge. This was proven on February 9th, 1971, when Ivan came across two young female hitchhikers in Liverpool who were in need of a ride towards Melbourne. Ivan happily agreed to take both girls to their destination. As time passed, both girls had fallen asleep in the vehicle, only to be woken by the traumatic sight of Ivan pulling off to the side of the road and pulling out a knife on them. In a turn of events, Ivan's stated, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill you. You won't scream when I cut your throats, will you? Fearing for their lives, Ivan used nylon cord to tie both females and began to rape one of the girls. Both hitchhikers successfully escaped their deaths when Ivan later drove into a gas station, giving them enough viable time to flee from the vehicle and call for help. Ivan was apprehended by police shortly thereafter and was charged with rape. His first major trial took place in 1974 where he was acquitted of his sex charges after stating to the New South Wales Supreme Jury that the sex with the hitchhiker had been classified as a consensual act. The alleged rape victim later changed her story agreeing to Ivan's defense. With no other option, charges were dropped, setting Ivan free and back on the streets. His freedom bred a sense of entitlement in his mind, and he believed he could do as he pleased without consequences. And like most destructive behavior, this arrogance only served to drastically shift his violent ways. But the shift was not immediate. Despite his newfound entitlement, he knew how close he came to prison. So during this time, Ivan took a temporary hiatus from his criminal activities, keeping himself off the radar from law enforcement. After his run-in with police on the rape charge, Ivan moved back in with his parents and made his living by getting a job as a full-time interstate truck driver. Ivan seemed steady in his life. He stopped smoking and drinking. However, his affairs within the family continued. Ivan was soon introduced to Karen Duck in 1975, a 17-year-old teenager who, at the time, had been pregnant with the child of his cousin, Mark. The two began dating behind his cousin's back and were later married in 1984. It was during his years of being in a stable relationship that the criminal urges he once acted upon were no longer an interest in his life, but things were far from paradise. Truth be told, Ivan's marriage was destined for failure. Karen attempted to make the relationship work, but instead suffered while 
while under the same roof as Ivan. It was at this stage in Ivan's life where he began to carry the same compulsive qualities as his own father. He was incredibly domineering towards Karen and refused to let her leave their home. And when she begged to do so, he demanded that she tell him exactly where she would go. He became a jealous man that desired constant control over his wife. Realizing that it would never work between them and unable to live a healthy and stable life, Karen filed for divorce in 1987. The rejection from a woman he loved put Ivan in a fit of rage and shattered the barrier that had just been barely holding back his desires for violence. Ivan had no intention of letting go without a fight and took out the aggression he built from his loss of control by beating Karen. Not fully satisfied, he decided it was best to then set her parents' house on fire. Ivan felt that he had lost power, and power was the most precious thing to him. Moving forward, he wasn't going to give anyone the option of taking his power away ever again. On September 19, 1992, joggers made their way through the Belanglo State Forest in New South Wales when they unexpectedly came across decaying remains hidden underneath piles of leaves and sticks. Authorities were promptly brought to the scene and were shocked to uncover a second set of remains. The bodies were discovered to be that of 21-year-old Caroline Clark and her traveling companion, 22-year-old Joanne Walters, two young women from the UK that had been reported missing since April of that year. Dr. Peter Bradhurst, the forensic pathologist assigned to the case, made a discovery that both women had been backpackers looking to work in Sydney, Australia, and were last heard from prior to hitchhiking on the Hume Highway. The bodies of Caroline and Joanne indicated that both women exhibited multiple stab wounds. Apart from being stabbed, Caroline had been shot 10 times in the head. Joanne had been stabbed about 35 times. Each female had a severe wound to their spine as well, suggesting that their killer had attempted to paralyze them during their struggle for survival. Sexual assault was presumed to have taken place due to the fact that both buttons on the women's jeans were hastily fastened and the zippers left unzipped. Forensic evidence of the same 22 caliber bullet casings had been discovered near the bodies by a small campsite, indicating that the murderer most likely spent the night next to the bodies. Investigators now had a murderer on the loose. A second set of bodies were found in the state forest on October 5th, 1993, when a man scavenging for firewood discovered the skeletal remains of two individuals. Investigators were able to confirm the bodies belonged to Australian couple James Gibson and his girlfriend Deborah Everest both 19 years old at the time of their deaths. The couple had been reported missing in 1989 after telling a group of friends that the two were planning on hitchhiking down the Hume Highway to Albury for a conservation rally. Deborah's body had been far too decomposed for proper examination. However, pathologists were able to conclude that she had been bound with her tights and suffered brutal stabs to her head and body. James suffered similar abuse as the previous victims, which included multiple stab wounds and a distinguishable wound to his spine. Once again, a small fire pit with shell casings had been discovered near the bodies. And that's when it became quite apparent that New South Wales was dealing with a serial killer. A manhunt commenced on November 12, 1993. Police made their way through every piece of land in the Belanglo State Forest and gathered a task force together called the Task Force Air. On November 1st, the body of German hitchhiker Simone Schmidl was discovered with similar patterns of stabbings and burial. Three days after, the sixth and seventh remains belonging to German tourist Anja Habschied and her boyfriend Gabor Neugebauer, who had been reported missing in 1991, were discovered in a similar fashion of previous victims. Anya had been a victim to a new development in the killer's methods. She had been decapitated. Pathologists suggested that the decapitation had occurred while Anya was still alive and being placed on her knees in a kneeling position, execution style. Ivan's murders were evolving as he grew more and more daring with each kill and more and more brutal. Overwhelming and disabling his victims gave Ivan physical control while raping and killing them offered him emotional and mental control. This is further proven by the fact that Ivan also sexually assaulted his male victims. It wasn't the person that attracted him, it was the opportunity for dominance. His murders now drastically differed from his original victimization of the two hitchhikers that he ended up sparing. He had come a long way. His appetite for death only grew more voracious and killing had become a full-blown addiction as it fulfilled the warped tastes he had developed through his unstable upbringing. 
A few of the locals around town pointed their fingers at Ivan and took note of his extensive firearms collection. The wide range of methods employed by the killer, as well as the sexual assault of both men and women, made it difficult to narrow down the suspect list. Though many targeted the Malats, police failed to uncover evidence that indicated any of the siblings had murdered any of the seven hitchhikers. A major breakthrough surfaced when investigators received a call from a man by the name of Paul Onions. Paul resided in Britain, but wished to fly down to aid investigators in the hunt for their serial killer. Back on January 25, 1990, Paul had been hitchhiking in Australia when he was approached by a man who identified himself as Bill. His driver seemed easygoing and friendly. However, a sudden change in the man's attitude made Paul second-guess his actions of getting into the vehicle. In a matter of minutes, the driver pulled off to the side of a dirt road nearby the infamous Belanguo State Forest, exited his vehicle, and pulled out a gun towards Paul. In a split second, Paul ran out of the car and waved frantically for another car as his driver attempted to shoot shoot him down. Paul fortunately survived the event, but police didn't investigate the attempted murder at that time. But Paul was certain that he had come face to face with the serial killer that terrified New South Wales. With an incredible amount of detail offered by Paul, police were now able to pin Ivan as their primary suspect. Investigators were able to pull Ivan's records and had been comfortable in linking Ivan to Paul's attempted murder, giving them an official lead on their potential killer. On May 5th, 1994, Paul was able to identify Ivan as the man who had picked him up and attempted to murder him. Now with a search warrant in their hands, a team of detectives and officers made their way to Ivan's property on Cinnabar Street. At approximately 6.36 a.m., officers surrounded the property and entered the home. The interior was a jackpot to investigators. Personal belongings from victims such as camping accessories, electronics, and clothing were found, as well as multiple guns that matched bullets at the crime scenes. Ivan had been living with his sister Shirley and his mother Margaret in the house at the time of his arrest. His mother, though in shock, was furious with law enforcement and assured them that her son was far too good of a citizen to commit the acts they accused him of. Ivan appeared in court on robbery and weapon charges the following day and did not enter a plea for his actions. Due to the overwhelming evidence, officers were able to confirm that they had got their man. Ivan had taken so many souvenirs from each of his victims that he decided to place items in between the walls of his home. Over 300 officers gathered into search parties on various properties belonging to each Malat sibling, and with no surprise, additional possessions which had belonged to the victims were found. It seemed as if the Malats were aware of the possessions, but denied ever taking part in the crimes. After further investigations and questioning, Ivan was charged for the murders of his seven victims. Ivan remained in police custody until the start of his 15th week trial in March of 1996. His defense argued that in spite of the amount of evidence, there was no proof Ivan was guilty and attempted to shift the blame to other members of his family, particularly his brother Richard Malott. After much debate, a final verdict was reached on July 27, 1996. The jury found Ivan guilty of the murders, giving him a total of seven life sentences, one for each life taken, with all sentences running consecutively and without the possibility of parole. Ivan was additionally convicted for the attempted murder, false imprisonment, and robbery of Paul Onions, which he received six years of jail for each offense. After an attempt to escape his jail cell in Maitland Correctional Center, Ivan was transferred to the maximum security super prison known as Goldburn Correctional Center. During during his time in jail, Ivan attempted suicide on several occasions, yet another attempt to regain control of his circumstances by ingesting razor blades, staples, and other harmful objects. On January 26, 2009, Ivan cut off his little finger with the use of a plastic knife in an attempt to mail the severed digit to the High Court of Australia. Failing to do so, Ivan was transported to Goulburn Hospital under high security. However, doctors were unsuccessful in reattaching the finger. Ivan Malat is currently 71 years old and remains detained under high security and will do so for the rest of his life. Most recently, in 2010, Ivan Malat's great-nephew Matthew Malat and a friend murdered a 17-year-old boy on his birthday in Belanglo State Forest, just as his uncle had done years before. Matthew Malat was sentenced to 43 years in prison. Eileen Warnos a prostitute turned cold-blooded killer. Nothing about Eileen's childhood could be called normal. 
Born Eileen Carol Pittman on February 29, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan, she was raised in a dysfunctional family. Eileen's mother, Diane Warnos, was just 15 when she married Leo Pittman in 1954. The two had a rocky marriage, but despite their marital problems, Diane gave birth to two children, Keith in 1955 and Eileen the following year. The marriage came to a final stop after two years when Eileen's father was charged with sex crimes after attempting to rape and murder a seven-year-old girl, the same year Eileen was born. Being a child molester diagnosed with schizophrenia, both children never had a personal connection with their father. Leo Pittman hanged himself in prison in 1969 while serving his time for his sex crimes. Deeming herself to be unfit for motherhood, Diane abandoned the children when Eileen was just four years old, leaving both children orphaned until their grandparents were granted custody over them on March 18, 1960. Though Eileen was under new care, a path of destruction was just waiting to unravel. Growing up with her grandparents was anything but nurturing for the minors. The household exposed her to alcoholism and sexual abuse as Eileen claimed her grandfather was an aggressive drunk who would force her to strip all of her clothing before beating and sexually assaulting her on a daily basis. This eventually led Eileen to engage in ancestral activities with her brother and offering sexual favors at school for cigarettes, drugs, and food when she was only 11 years old. In 1970, at the age of 14, Eileen was kicked out of her grandparents' house after the family discovered she was raped by her grandfather's friend, resulting in a baby she did not want, nor planned on raising. She had no choice but to stay at a house for unwed mothers during her pregnancy. Nine months later, Eileen gave birth to a baby she immediately put up for adoption. Without a family to fall back on, Eileen dropped out of school after giving birth to her son and turned to prostitution as a form of income. Barely able to support herself, she lived by herself in the woods, using her body to earn a living on the streets. In 1974, she found herself at the hands of crime after being charged with a DUI, firing a 22 caliber pistol from her vehicle, and failing to appear at her court case. After discovering her grandmother had passed away from liver failure, Eileen was in search for a new life and hitchhiked her way to Florida in 1976. It was this same year when she met 69-year-old Louis Fallon before she knew it, the two were married. Being a newlywed and living in a new state did not stop Eileen from engaging in her destructive lifestyle. The months following into her marriage resulted in many run-ins with the police after she frequently got into violent altercations with locals at bars. She also had a restraining order filed against her by her own husband after she began beating him with his cane and squandering his money. Just nine weeks into the marriage, Lewis filed for divorce, leaving Eileen on the streets once again. On July 17th of that same year, Eileen's brother Keith passed away from esophageal cancer, and with that, she left the last of her family behind. No friends or family left her exposed to a dark criminal lifestyle. The death of her brother resulted in Eileen obtaining $10,000 of his life insurance. With this money, she fled back to Michigan and continued her heinous crimes. From 1981 to 1986, Eileen went on to be charged with numerous offenses such as robbery, fraud, grand theft auto, and resisting arrest from police. After multiple failed relationships with men, she began dating Tyria Moore, a hotel maid she met at a South Daytona gay bar called Zodiac in the spring of 1986. Though Tyria made a living being a maid, the couple were heavily supported by Eileen's prostitution. It was at this time that regular crimes no longer satisfied Eileen's criminal nature. On December 13, 1989, two men were searching for scrap metal around Volusia County in Florida when they unexpectedly came across the remains of a middle-aged man wrapped in a carpet. Investigators were able to identify the body belonging to 51-year-old Richard Mallory, who was shot three times with a 22 caliber pistol. His body was discovered several miles away from his 1977 Cadillac. Without a trace in the murder investigation, the mysterious case went cold. The killing spree continued to escalate after several male bodies were discovered around Florida. On May 5th, 1990, the body of an unidentified naked male was discovered across the state line from Florida into Brooks County, Georgia. The victim had been shot twice. Investigators were unable to find leads, leaving the case cold. On June 7th of that same year, police were able to identify an additional body of David Spears, who was also found shot with a 22 caliber pistol. Numerous bodies were found having been shot with a 22 caliber pistol, which led police to believe that there was one single killer. On July 4th, 1990, Eileen and her girlfriend abandoned a vehicle belonging to a victim, 65-year-old Peter Seams, after the car was totaled in a car accident. Florida police were able to grab leads from witnesses and were able to retrieve Eileen's fingerprints from the car, the same fingerprints which matched her identity on police criminal databases. A media campaign to track down the serial killer caused national headlines. 
On January 9, 1991, police arrested Eileen at a biker bar in Volusia County. Tyria was discovered in Pennsylvania the following day and agreed to confess what she knew in exchange for immunity from her prosecution. After hours of her girlfriend pleading with her, Eileen admitted to the murders of Richard Mallory, David Spears, Charles Karskadon, Peter Seams, Troy Barres, Charles Humphreys, and Walter Antonio, claiming that every man attempted to rape her, leading her to kill them as a form of self-defense. On January 27, 1992, Eileen was convicted of the murder of her victim, Richard Mallory. After her sentencing, psychiatrists testified that Eileen suffered from borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. Just four days after her conviction, Eileen was sentenced to death. However, after her trials for the murders of several other victims, she was sentenced to six death sentences. Psychiatrists assessed Eileen using the psychopathy checklist. Scoring 32 out of 40, the diagnosis deemed her to have psychopathy, making her a highly unstable criminal who would have to be under strict observation while serving her time. While awaiting death row, Eileen was incarcerated in the Florida Department of Corrections Institution, where she stated, I killed those men robbed them cold as ice, and I'd do it again, too. The execution of Eileen Warnos took place on October 9th, 2002, by lethal injection, requesting nothing but a single cup of black coffee as her last meal. Eileen's remains were cremated, and her ashes were spread beneath a tree in her hometown in Michigan. She was the 10th woman in the United States to be executed since 1976. Some kill to fill a missing part of their life, and some kill for the hell of it, and others kill for both. Today we discuss the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper. Edmund Kemper was born in 1948 in Burbank, California. He exhibited surprising intelligence at a very early age. Edmund was born the middle child with two sisters. He looked up to his father greatly, but his mother was an abusive alcoholic who belittled Edmund any chance she got. His sisters offered no solace from his mother's assaults, as he was often pushed around by them as well. Edmund was a large boy for his age, tall and strong, but aside from favorable features, he demonstrated extremely troubling behaviors. Edmund carried the traits of many serial killers. He was not only antisocial, but sadistic. Even as a young boy, he craved death. He took his family's cat and buried it alive, eventually only to dig it back up and cut off its head to mount on a stick. The time came when Edmund's parents eventually got divorced and Edmund was forced to live with his mother out in Montana. This loss of connection with his father devastated Edmund and his life with his mother only became worse. Aside from the constant abuse, his mother would force Edmund to sleep in a locked basement because she believed he would rape his younger sister if he wasn't locked away. The abuse led to Edmund running away from home sometime later and returning to California to find his father. But once he found him, he discovered that his father had remarried and even had another son. Edmund stayed with his father for a short time before Edmund's father forced him to go back and live with his mother. But his mother wanted no part in it and sent Edmund to live with his grandparents. By this time, he was 15 years old. His inner turmoil was building up pressure, which released during an argument with his grandmother. He grabbed a rifle and shot his grandmother in the head killing her instantly. Edmund, being as strong as he was, had no issue in dragging his grandmother's dead body to hide it. Suddenly, however, he heard his grandfather's car pull up in the driveway. Afraid of his grandfather being cross with him over what he had done, he met his grandfather out in the driveway and shot him to death as well. Edmund, when questioned about the murders, claimed that he killed his grandfather to, yes, avoid punishment. However, when questioned about why he killed his grandmother, he claimed that he just wanted to know what it felt like. Edmund was sent to a psychiatric hospital where he not only did well, but befriended his psychiatrist, going so far as to even work as his assistant. Tests during this time determined that Edmund had an IQ of 136. Later into adulthood, that number would increase to 145. Despite recommendations by a number of other doctors against his release, Edmund was set free fewer than five years later. By the time he walked out of the hospital's doors, he stood at six feet nine inches tall and weighed nearly 300 pounds. His good behavior led to his criminal record being expunged 
and he was released to the care of his mother. Edmund had managed to fool the psychologist. He had full-blown intentions to kill now that he had a taste for it. And he would become a most dangerous combination. He would become a serial spree killer. Between 1972 and 1973, Edmund went on a murder spree, mercilessly killing female students and engaging in necrophilic sex with their corpses. He would often go hunting after his mother displayed one of her regular outbursts against him. He would often find girls hitchhiking and pick them up, take them to secluded areas where he would murder them in a number of different ways. From stabbing to shooting to smothering, he would then take their bodies back to his apartment and decapitate them, engaging in sex with their severed heads and bodies, while also dissecting them to satisfy his own morbid curiosities. One victim in particular, he took back to his mother's house and hid the body in his room. He decapitated the corpse and buried the head in his mother's garden as a joke, claiming that his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Edmund continued on his murderous rampage, which his mother continued to initiate unknowingly with her bad temperament, until Edmund one day decided to end the cycle. On Good Friday in 1973, Edmund was at his mother's house resting when he heard her arrive home from a party. She went to her bedroom to read a book and he stepped into her doorway. She muttered a sarcastic remark towards him, to which he said, Good night before beating her to death with a claw hammer. He cut off her head, raped it, and then ripped out her vocal cords and stuffed them down the garbage disposal. When the garbage disposal couldn't effectively dispose of the vocal cords and spit them back out into the sink, Edmund found it humorous, equating their resilience with her incessant bitching. After this, he phoned up his mother's best friend, invited her over, and murdered her as well. Edmund, finally having gained enough courage to murder the woman who inspired him to murder, promptly went and turned himself in to police, being one of the few serial killers to ever do so. He was sentenced to life in prison, where he continues to serve today. Thanks for watching. If you'd like to learn more about serial killers and other creepy topics, be sure to follow my Facebook fan page, and I will see you next time. Case closed. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care, and enjoy your next episode.